Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome or welcome back to Season 3 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. The Logical Christian Podcast is not here to tell you what to think. It's an exercise in how to think. Rather than just accept what we're being told with regard to current events, politics, science, religion, and everything else, we're going to stop the spin, ask questions, dive deep, and look at the world logically. And since logic is a gift from God, most importantly, we're going to look at it all as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Every once in a while, and we're talking very, very infrequently, I may possibly do or say or think something that's not completely and totally perfectly acceptable with regard to the Christian belief system of which I purport to adhere to. Now, we're talking about the most minute, almost imperceptible, minimal violations of the biblical law. These almost imperceptible oopsies are so infinitesimal that one would hardly be able to call them sin. Ah. Was that thunder? Anyway, as I was saying, I'm a sinner. I'm a filthy sinner. I mean, I barely wake up before something sinful crosses my mind. (laughs) I'd assume probably one of the only times an assumption could be a safe one, that you're the same as me. Well, on today's episode, first we're going to dissect the brain, magnetically, to discover where morals go to hang out, and then we're going to delve into the depths of your depravity, so, uh, you know, be on your best behavior. So find your happy place before you're shoved in the tube, and put on your church face where everything is fine, and you're a sinless, spotless saint. Because that brings us to the end of this episode of the lot. No, no, that's a that's a filthy lie. I don't know why I said that. I'm sorry. Here we go. Morality. According to the American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language, 5th edition to be exact, morality is defined as, quote, the quality of being in accord with standards of right or good conduct, or, quote, a system or collection of ideas of right and wrong conduct or, quote, virtuous conduct. Merriam-Webster Online, it's kind of a muddled mess at this point, as they've actually really slid woke over the years, but a few of their definitions include, quote, a doctrine or system of moral conduct, and, quote, conformity to ideals of right human conduct. A Dictionary of the English Language by Samuel Johnson from 1768, and then Samuel Johnson and John Walker in 1828 both define morality as, quote, the doctrine of the duties of life, ethics, the form of an action which makes it the subject of reward or punishment. Did you notice the change from then to now? Over 250 years ago, and still nearly 200 years ago, morality was a duty. It was a duty of life. In other words, morality was the mandate of being human, And your actions, based on your perception of morality, would elicit punishment or reward. But today, morality is a matter of right or wrong and conforming with human determination. Subtle to be sure, maybe I'm looking too deeply into it, but it seems to me that the definition of morality today is very subjective. It's based on the collective. It's based on the perception at the time. It's based on the ever-fluid human definition of right and wrong. The old definitions had nothing to do with the collective. At least, it wasn't written in a way to suggest societal norms of the time. It was either right or it was wrong, rewarded or punished. Although not stated, it sounds to me like rights and wrongs 
were assumed to be set in stone. They were determined as outside of society, culture, eras, and epics. And if we zoom in even closer, beginning in the 1960s or maybe the 1970s, we have a society that's currently termed postmodern. The definitions haven't really caught up, it seems, but we're currently in an era of moral relativism. Simply stated, something could be right for me, wrong for you, and neutral for someone else, and we're all correct, all at the same time. Which is an illogical, contradictory position to hold, but that's what's being held by many people in the world today, and is on the rise in the younger generations especially. Let me give you a few scenarios. Focus on how these little things make you feel. What, what kind of reaction do you have, if any? when I give you these scenarios. First, two men in a knockdown drag-out fistfight. How about two women in a knockdown drag-out fistfight? Those same two women, but now they have uh, eight-ounce gloves on their hands and they're in the octagon. How about putting socks on first after a shower? How about wearing socks in the shower? What about a man pushing an elderly lady onto the subway tracks? A woman brutally murdering a baby? How about that same woman as a doctor performing an abortion on an unborn fetus? What about milk first and then the cereal? How about cereal first, but then water? A, a child violently disrespecting his parents. And finally, what about a person in a car running from the police? Now, all of these are examples of either moral violations or violations of social norms, but with no relation to morality. How did these make you feel? Did they make you feel icky? Did some of them spark outrage? Were you indifferent to a few of them? Why? Why do you feel the way you do about certain things? Where do your morals come from? Well, found on SciPost.org, headline... New neuroscience research provides fascinating insights into the mystery of moral cognition. Now this is good information, because in a world of moral relativism, if we can figure out where morals come from or how morals are determined, maybe we can fix the morality of those that don't seem to have any morality. Of course, I base my statement about fixing the morality of others based on my perception of morality, which may be different than your perception of morality, or may not be. Right? Well, let's see what these science-talking guys have to say about all this, shall we? Now, for those new to this channel, I'm neither a brain scientist nor a rocket surgeon. I'm but a lowly engineer of the mechanical variety. So when it comes to topics like how the brain works, well, I have to take a lot of what I'm told at face value. That said, according to the article, the prevailing historical theory regarding morality is that it comes from one area in the brain. Now, to me, I think I'd be suspect of anything coming from one part of the brain, as time and time again we see people with very traumatic brain injuries living lives that are virtually indistinguishable from those without brain injuries. This usually involves a process of relearning something, but the brain seems to be a very malleable, resilient chunk of meat. One might even say it's been designed <laughs> to function at a much higher level than we can even begin to understand. 
So when the article starts with, quote, in a new study, neuroscientists have delved deep into the human brain's approach to moral judgment. Their findings reveal that our moral decisions activate various distinct areas of the brain, challenging the notion that morality is processed in a single moral hotspot. Well, I'm not sure that we should be overly surprised by that, right? But again, I'm not a brain guy. They go on to state, quote, The motivation behind this study lies in one of moral science's most heated debates, whether our moral reasoning is a monolithic process or a diverse one. Oh, you can feel the heat. Okay, look, I know I'm just a knuckle-dragger, but is there really a field of science called moral science? It feels made up, if I'm being honest. Eh, so being me, I did a quick Google search. The first few results returned pages on the science of morality, which, okay, not the same thing, though. At least I don't think it is. That would be studying morality, which you can at least attempt to study practically anything using the scientific method. But the term moral science makes it seem like morality is explainable via science in itself. That's simply not true, at least it doesn't feel like that's true. Now, I did find a result of a study of some sort. I found it on ndpr.nd.edu, although it was on multiple sites, and it was entitled Living Together, Inventing Moral Science. This is from August of 2023. Now, this seems more like the direction that they're coming from, an invented field right? This work is a collection of essays with a, quote, variety of interrelated topics in moral and political philosophy, and it appears that it leans heavily in the direction of philosophy rather than what I would consider to be science, which would make much more sense to me. And this study or this collection is authored or compiled, I'm really not sure which, I don't really care, by one David Schmitz. You'd likely know him from no, I'm just kidding. Odds are none of us have ever heard of him. He's probably a fine bloke, or chap, or blokeette. I guess these days he or they can be whatever them want to be, right? Who am I to judge? The second paragraph of this article gives us a decent idea of what moral science means. Quote, Schmitz suggests that political philosophy is prior to moral philosophy. How so? Our moral reasons depend largely, if not entirely, on social rules. But not just any social rules give us moral reasons, rather only rules that are socially beneficial provide moral reasons. Determining which rules and institutions are socially beneficial is the task of what Schmitz calls moral science, a field of study initiated by David Hume and Adam Smith, but unfortunately neglected since then. Aside, moral and science both had somewhat different meanings in Hume's day than in ours, so the phrase doesn't exactly mean what it sounds like to modern ears. Moral science, properly done, would draw on philosophy, economics, history, and perhaps other disciplines. As Schmitz emphasizes, the conclusions of moral science rest on fallible inferences from empirical evidence, in particular, evidence about which institutions and rules have a track record of promoting human welfare. So, David Hume and Adam Smith both lived in the mid-1700s. So now I'm curious what the definition of moral and science was back then compared to what it is today. And this is a perfect example of the rabbit hole I seem to fall into every single time when working through an article or a topic for this podcast. 
<clears throat> there we go. So moral in the mid-1700s was defined as, quote, relating to the practice of men towards each other, as it may be virtuous or criminal, good or bad, reasoning or instructing with regard to vice or virtue. Today, moral is defined as, quote, of or relating to principles of right and wrong behavior, conforming to a standard of right behavior, sanctioned by or operative on one's conscience or ethical judgment. Those don't seem too different. I mean, a bit, but not excessive, right? Now, science in the mid-1700s was defined as, quote, knowledge, certainty grounded on demonstration, one of the seven liberal arts, grammar, rhetoric, logic, arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy. Today, science is defined as, quote, knowledge or a system of knowledge covering general truths or the operation of general laws, especially as obtained and tested through scientific method. Such knowledge or such a system of knowledge concerned with the physical world and its phenomena. Again, these don't seem vastly different to me. Do they to you? I don't think so. But, but there are some differences. The same kind of differences I just mentioned between the old and current definition of morality. And moving back to our main article, I think the differences will start to become clear. So the study had a very small sample size of only 64 participants, mostly young adults from the University of California, Santa Barbara. It was undertaken to analyze the moral foundations theory, which states that morals are guided by, quote, multiple contextually variable moral institutions, rather than by a singular so-called moral north star. Quote, these foundations include care, fairness, loyalty, authority, sanctity, and more recently identified, liberty. Essentially, this theory suggests that our moral judgments stem from different mental processes evolved to tackle specific social challenges. So the team performing the study wanted to use functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, to determine if moral judgments come from multiple locations in the brain, which process the various foundations just mentioned at the same time, or does the brain do the work in various areas and make the moral judgment process from one converging location in the brain? Now, frankly, I can't for the life of me understand why anyone would care. About the only use I could see for something like this may, I don't know, possibly being trying to determine why some people seem to lack socially accepted moral norms. Like, do they have a brain injury, a brain defect that causes them to not be able to process morality correctly while seeming to function perfectly normal, but results in a form of criminality or unacceptable behavior? I'm not entirely sure that's where they're going with this. However, per the study's author, Renee Weber, a professor at UC Santa Barbara, Quote, complex and context-dependent moral judgment is a unique human capacity and at the core of most social interactions among humans, either directly person-to-person -person or mediated. As such, it is an important and fascinating topic to study for a cognitive psychologist, neuroscientist, and communication scientist. It is fascinating, and it is uniquely human. That should raise a certain series of questions scientific questions, but it doesn't, because despite the definition of science, both then and now being at least in part a process of testing to obtain knowledge, science today in practice is simply a system of circular backslapping as they confirm what they've determined to be true within an accepted sphere of agreed-upon truths. God forbid, well, no, we don't want to do that. Science forbid that they even consider anything outside of their safety sphere of truth. A little smelly, but it's a warm and comfortable 
place, you know, inside that sphere. The participants, while being resonantly imaged, both magnetically and functionally, were asked a variety of questions, at least conceptually similar to the questions I posed to you at the beginning of the segment. Now, I say conceptually similar because I could not find the list of questions or scenarios that were actually asked. I looked in this article. I looked in the actual study report. I even went to their repository of data and nothing. So I created my own moral and societal norm types of questions, at least to give you an idea. Now, the only question I knew for sure was regarding eating cereal with water, which, let's be honest, that's gross. And that served as their control question for each participant, essentially to calibrate the participant, for lack of a better term. The participants were given 120 scenarios, asked to rate said scenarios on a given scale from one being not morally wrong to four being extremely morally wrong based on their perception of the moral wrongness of the given scenarios. While doing that, their brain function was scanned in real time to see what area or areas in the brain triggered for each category of scenario. And just for good measure, I'll say scenario one more time. Scenario. The brain scientists found that different areas of the brain triggered for different examples. You thought I was going to say scenario again, didn't you? Based on if it was a violation of societal norms or a moral violation. Moral violation categories encompassed areas of physical care, emotional care, fairness, liberty, authority, loyalty, and sanctity. Fifteen scenarios were given for each of the seven morality categories, as well as the societal norm category. Of course, they were all intermixed inside there. The results suggested that moral violations triggered a deeper cognitive process to evaluate than did the violation of societal norms. Now, I know I'm probably just going to preach to the choir here, but quote, a distributed network involving areas like the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex, posterior cingulate cortex, temporoparietal junction, and primary visual cortex showed common activation across all moral foundations. This suggests that these areas of the brain are pivotal in discerning moral judgments from non-moral social norm transgressions. <laughs> I'm sure you were thinking the exact same thing. And yes, I only included that quote so I could sound like a smart brain guy by saying big words. Seriously, though, one interesting finding was that the different categories of moral violations triggered different parts of the brain, which suggests that when we make a judgment about the morality of something, the rightness or wrongness of something, we're using our entire brain to make our evaluation. Working backwards, the study was able to predict what category of moral or societal question was being asked based solely on what areas of the brain were shown to be triggered. Another interesting finding was that those of different political bents, namely liberal versus conservative, processed moral judgments differently. <laughs> I know! I had to pick my jaw up off the floor, too. I mean, what a shocker! <sighs> From their findings, the liberals among us, bless their hearts, had more neural activity in areas related to care or harm and fairness or cheating. The conservatives had greater activity in areas of loyalty or betrayal, authority or subversion, and sanctity or degradation. The study concluded that the liberals were more concerned with protecting the rights and the freedoms of individuals, while conservatives were more concerned with group cohesion, respect for authority, and purity. Now, I'd agree that liberals are generally more concerned with at least 
their perception of fairness and their perception of caring for an individual. I'd agree that conservatives have a greater respect for authority, loyalty, and sanctity. Not sure that I agree with their conclusion as to what that means, as the liberal wing does not care about the rights and freedoms of individuals, rather only the rights and freedoms they deem necessary for the individuals they determine should have them. You can noodle that one out for yourself, not an area I'm going to argue in this segment. Now, what I did find interesting was their conclusion regarding the interaction of morality, neural activity, and political ideology. Quote, the researchers also found that liberals and conservatives exhibited distinct patterns of brain activation when making moral judgments. This suggests that an individual's political orientation is not just a reflection of their social and moral beliefs, but it also influences the fundamental neural processes underlying these beliefs. Does that sound backwards to anyone else or is it just me? It sounds like what they're saying is that we develop, I'm assuming through instruction, example, experience, our moral and societal beliefs, which then influences our political ideology, which then causes the brain to function in a certain way. Wouldn't it make more sense that our brains function in certain ways, which in turn interprets the instruction, examples, and experiences we gather, which results in a political ideology? In fact, the joke about politics is that the difference between a liberal and a conservative is time and maturity. There's something along those lines. Data shows that generally, as people age, more people tend toward conservatism than liberalism. Now, would this suggest a maturing of the brain and a maturing of the neurological processes that evaluate morality? Well, I think we can categorically and definitively say, maybe? Weber, the study's author I mentioned earlier, concluded, quote, Morality or moral judgment is not just one thing or arises from just one concern, for example, from harming or caring for other individuals. At its core, morality's function is to facilitate group cohesion and cooperation among humans because there are many cooperative problems to solve. Moral judgment is diverse and different individuals develop different moral sensibilities. And again, I'd have to ask, is the core function of morality actually to facilitate group cohesion and human cooperation, as Weber concluded? Because that doesn't seem right either. However, from his position, from his worldview, well, I guarantee that makes perfect sense. Now, the study's authors admit that this was a very small sample size and a very non-diverse sample size is only 64, mostly young, university-affiliated adults, and expanding both the sample size and the diversity could alter or confirm the findings thus far. This, they state, would be the focus of future research. Now, Weber further stated, quote, There are dozens of additional questions to be addressed. The question of why and how moral judgment works has been an important topic for scholars from diverse backgrounds for millennia and it will keep scholars busy for a long time. For us, our next goals are testing different theories of moral judgment against each other and to replicate our findings in our Nature Human Behavior article in more diverse populations. So what do you think? Did you catch what they're missing? Did you see the unscientific aspect of their otherwise scientific study? Did you figure out their worldview? Probably so. They're approaching this analysis from a purely godless evolutionary worldview. So what does that mean? Well, 
At the core, that means that morals are not inherent. They're not based on absolute truth. They're subjective to societal agreement. This is why he made the comment that, quote, at its core, morality's function is to facilitate group cohesion and cooperation among humans. I've mentioned a number of times the Wretched Radio podcast. I further mentioned that on Wednesdays, he plays excerpts from his on-site witnessing, typically on college campuses, where he talks to various students about their beliefs. As part of the questions, he'll often ask them if they consider themselves to be postmodern. He'll ask them a morality-based question, such as, is beating a child wrong? They'll typically answer that they consider that to be wrong. Then he'll further ask them that if there's an island somewhere, hypothetically, where the tribe of people consider it to be the correct thing to do, to just beat their children senseless every night, are they wrong? And this is usually where things go awry. See, the students more often than not answer that even though they would consider it to be wrong, well, if that society determines it's right, well, then it's right for them. They're in no position to judge. For Mr. Weber and his team's worldview, these students are absolutely correct, as morals are quite simply agreements regarding accepted conduct within a group of people. And from a 10,000-foot view, a broad conceptual view that's probably generally fine, as people, humans, generally agree on at least the broad concepts of acceptable behavior, I guess that's okay. Could I possibly qualify that statement any more than I just did? And no, no, I couldn't, not without severe brain trauma. The problem is that the concept of accepted societal behavior, or maybe better termed agreed-upon codes of morality, is that those are fickle and fluid. We're currently reaping the fruits of that mindset today. I mean, look at the state of sexual perversion, pornography, fornication, adultery. We've gone from a society that frowned on that, calling it what it is, a sin, to a society that hid movies behind the curtain and magazines behind the colored plastic sleeves, to a society that advocates for the rights and legalization of prostitution, perversity, and even children's cartoons on regular TV, easily accessible internet pornography, hookup websites, and dating sites for adulterers. And this doesn't even delve into the perversity of the LGBTQQI2 plus community, the acceptance of cross-dressing to the acceptance of transgender people, which don't exist as you can't actually transition a gender, to the transing and grooming of children, including the physical and psychological mutilation of the kids. A look at the sanctity of life. We used to consider life precious, and if you took a life, your life was forfeit as penalty. Now we murder the unborn, we coddle the criminal, and we're rapidly moving into the acceptance of the oh-so-dignified way to die through assisted suicide. Lying used to be considered a sin. Children are still taught not to lie. But look at our political culture. Nearly every one of them in the world of politics is a known provable liar. And we just elect them to the highest positions of power in our local, state, and national stages. Drugs used to be something only the worst of the worst partake of. The others, if you will. But today, regardless of the rhetoric coming from those same politicians, drugs aren't really that big of a deal. This is made obvious by the legalization of marijuana, which regardless of what we're being told is absolutely a gateway drug, and those telling us it isn't absolutely know it is. Again, they're liars. And the list goes on and on. The abuse of alcohol, the acceptance of crony capitalism, the double standards and demonization of those with a different concentration of melanin in their skin, sexual slavery, etc., etc., etc. And the problem is that Mr. Weber and his evolutionary-based ilk have no leg to stand on to decry any of this. 
their only argument is that society doesn't like it. But as we're finding more and more, society absolutely likes it. In fact, they love it. They crave it. And the trajectory of humanity, especially in the civilized, industrialized world, is quite obviously in the wrong moral direction. Unless your morals are fluid and exist on a sliding scale, then I guess everything's fine. What's honestly sad about this study, about Mr. Weber's comments, is when he stated that this morality thing is uniquely human. Well, he's right, but he at least appears to just accept that this is a product of evolution and then moves on. But no, evolution posits the opposite conclusion. Evolution says that our personal morals should be what's best for me, for each individual individually. Why do I care about you? My goal is to survive and mate and pass my genes to as many children as possible and then let them fight each other for survival, with the survivors passing on as many of their genes as possible, and the cycle continues, evolving into ever more advanced and enlightened creatures as the generations continue. Depending on the translation, the word moral only appears a few times in the Bible. In the Legacy Standard Bible, which is one of the translations I definitely recommend, we find it in 1 Corinthians 15.33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. This cross-references over to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In the first reference, the word morals is the Greek word ethos. In the second reference, the word translated as sexually immoral is the Greek word pornos. Pornos, or pornea, is used all over the Bible, speaking of all sorts of sexual perversion and immorality. The word ethos, used in this particular verse, is used only once in the Bible. It's spelled in the Greek, eta, theta, omicron, zeta, and it means, among other things, character or morals. Now, this is derived from a Greek word that sounds the same, ethos, which is spelled just very slightly differently, Epsilon, Theta, Omicron, Zeta, which is used 12 times in the Bible, translated as custom or habit, which comes from the Greek word etho, spelled Epsilon, Theta, Omega, which is found four times, also translated as customs. The word translated morals is further translated in various Bible versions as character or manners, but it most often translates as morals. In fact, when you look up this verse, the phrase, bad company corrupts good morals, is in quotation marks. So looking this up, apparently Paul is quoting the Greek poet Menander, who lived from about 340 B.C. to 290 B.C. He was a writer of Greek comedies, for the most part, and was one of the most popular writers in antiquity. This phrase is attributed to Menander's play Theus, and they think he probably took it from Euripides, a playwright, a tragedian, from about 480 to 406 BC. This wasn't the only time that Paul quoted Menander, which is fine, as using popular common sayings was a perfectly legitimate form of communication, and we do it all the time today, and we'll go ahead and call that official digression number one for 2024. Back to morals. Where do they come from? Well, since evolution can't explain them, since humanist societies can't maintain them, where do they come from? Why does, or at least did, humanity in general agree upon basic codes of conduct? 
Well, the basis for morals, surprise of all surprises, comes from the Bible. Specifically, it has its roots in the Ten Commandments. The first four, no other gods, no idols, no careless use of God's name, and keeping the Sabbath are all vertical commandments, our relationship with God. The other six are all horizontal commandments, how we treat each other, which is at least what I would consider to be the basis for our code of morals. And those commandments are unchanging, regardless of era, society, gender, culture, etc. You could almost say that they are, wait for it, (laughs) wait for it, written in stone. Please don't report me. Honor your father and mother, which applies directly to parents and indirectly to authority figures in general. Don't murder. As Jesus clarified, this pertains to murder in our hearts as well, wishing ill on people, placing people in a lowly position in our mind. That can apply as well. Don't commit adultery. And as Jesus clarified, just go ahead and throw any sexually related thing in this category that is outside of the God-ordained relationship of marriage. One man, one woman. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. Coveting is simply telling God that the blessings he's given you, the plan for your life, whether easy or hard, isn't right. That you don't believe God knows what he's doing, that you could do a better job. This is our code of morals, the law. But the law was given to the Jewish people, you say, and that's true. But it's been reaffirmed to those of us that have been grafted in as children of Abraham, Christians, inheritors of the promise of an eternal life with Christ. The law is still the basis of morals for modern society, for all people. And this even applies to those that aren't Christians, to those that have no knowledge of the Ten Commandments. Paul expands on the use of the law in Romans 2. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law naturally do the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Now, this law that was given to the Israelites, this law that was given to those of us that were grafted in, to those that are saved, is the same law that is actually written on the hearts of all men. The reason that man has throughout history basically agreed upon a very similar code of moral conduct is because that law, whether aware of it or not, is written on our very DNA. This is still seen today, although very blurry in our current culture, when we see people who are not saved, have no interest or maybe even no real knowledge of Christianity, fighting for or against policies, mandates, laws, etc. that strike at their conscience in an attempt to live by the inherent code written on our very being. So, if this is the case, why in the world would Mr. Weber and his team ignore the origin of morals? It literally wouldn't change their experimentation. It wouldn't change anything about their analysis of neurological processing. In fact, it would give them a better foundation, a true starting point, which could then help them predict more accurately or understand more thoroughly why we see what we see in society. But they don't want that. As I've mentioned in a past episode quite a while back, Professor Richard Lewinton, a geneticist and self-proclaimed Marxist, in reviewing the 1997 book by Carl Sagan, The Demon Haunted World as a Candle in the Dark, said this, quote, 
Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material cause to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. The eminent Kant scholar Louis Beck used to say that anyone who could believe in God could believe in anything. To appeal to an omnipotent deity is to allow that at any moment the regularities of nature may be ruptured, that miracles may happen. And you see, modern humanist science simply can't let that happen. To allow that divine foot in the door would disrupt everything. It would necessarily decimate the core doctrine of the religion of evolution. It would knock man off his self-created pedestal of preeminence. It would necessarily burn our current man-created sliding scale of what we call morals to the ground, which would mean we couldn't or wouldn't feel as free to just do what feels good, to fulfill our momentary lusts and cravings. There would be morals based on hard and fast rules. We simply can't have that. That's too narrow-minded, too preachy, too judgmental, too mean. It's amazing and kind of sad to read articles like this that actually display the unbelievable blessing on humanity of scientific achievement, of logical reasoning, of the ability to collect and analyze data and perform actionable analysis that can lead to even more advancement and hopefully, eventually, lead to something that could benefit humanity and ultimately bring God glory. But it's all tainted. It's incomplete. It's completely backwards and illogical. And ultimately, it borders on being meaningless because they simply can't allow a divine foot in the door. The more I search around for news articles and the more my algorithms adjust, the more I find that man will do anything possible to simply dance around the Bible. There's no putting your right foot in and your right foot out. There's no shaking it all about. You don't even dip your big toe into the Bible anymore. You just dance around it. What do I mean? No idea. Who are you? How did you get in here? Where are my pants? No, I'm kidding. I didn't go all Biden. Seriously, what do I mean by what I just rambled my way through? Take the topic of evolution, for example. That's the easy one. And if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you know I cover evolution-related topics on a somewhat frequent basis. Now, the world will look at pieces of evidence and rather than consider the biblical creation account that most closely represents what they're seeing, they'll do that little arms out to the side, suck in the stomach sideways step maneuver to ensure not one bit of the Bible gets on them as they come up with some explanation that on its face is completely implausible and most of the time completely laughable. Well, we've got yet another example today, something unique, something very interesting to be honest, something that could actually be useful and used in conjunction with religious beliefs and biblical truths, but at least for now, they're, they're not going to do that, and I have a strong suspicion that they never will. 
because to the unsaved world, the Bible is just a fairy tale, maybe a collection of morality-based tales, some good advice, and there's some history in there, but what it definitely isn't is the infallible guide showing what was, what is, and what will be, explaining at the root cause level why this world is how it is. Found on ScienceAlert.com headline, Scientists have found the driving force behind your darkest impulses. Well, I think I speak for all of us when I say it's about time. I mean, what have these scientists been doing all this time? Now, my big question, is there a vaccine or something that we can all partake of to stop this dark stuff? Follow-up question, will the members of our various local, more so state, and most so federal governments be mandated to take this as well, or are they not subject to what the rest of us peons are, per usual? After I scan the article, no, there's no vax yet. I'm sure it's coming. Anyway, this article was written right at the end of 2023, but the study itself was done in 2018. Now, there's a copyright credit to another source in their abstract of the study that came from 2020. I'm really not sure why this article is showing up now, over five years after the study was done, but maybe they only recently published the results of the analysis? I'm really not sure. It mostly doesn't matter. It's just a curiosity. So there's something that psychologists have termed the dark triad. It was created or assembled in 2002. These are three personality types that aren't psychological in nature. In other words, they're they're common or they're normal traits that people have, but they're generally offensive or malevolent, malicious type of traits. In other words, you may not be crazy, but if you exhibit these traits, you may be a jerk or from a human standpoint, a really bad person. Now, truth be told, we likely all exhibit these traits, depending on the situation from time to time at different levels. But if you're these all the time, that's probably not a good thing. Now, the three personality types in the dark triad are narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism, which is just, that's a fun word to say. Narcissism is generally characterized by a sense of superiority, pride, the egotism, and a lack of empathy. A psychopathy could be thought of as a continuous antisocial behavior, uh, impulsivity, selfishness, unemotionalism, and a lack of remorse. And then Machiavellianism is generally characterized by manipulation, exploitation of others, amoral behavior, a focus on self, and again, a lack of empathy. Now, this study from 2018, done by psychologists from Germany and Denmark, started with the dark triad, and they further expanded the number of dark traits or personality types that humans exhibit, adding another seven traits. Those traits include egoism, which is focusing on your own pleasure or advantage at the expense of the well-being of others or of the community at large. Greed, which we all know, but they define as a dissatisfaction of not having enough and a desire to have more. Moral disengagement, which is the ability to behave unethically without feeling any distress through mentally dehumanizing others and passing the blame or eschewing responsibility. There's psychological entitlement, a feeling of deserving more, especially that you're entitled to more. Sadism, which is the engaging in cruel, demeaning, or aggressive behavior to exert dominance or to derive personal pleasure. There's self-centeredness, which is simply just not caring about anyone but yourself. And finally, spitefulness, which is akin to revenge. It's the desire to harm someone even if it results in harm to yourself. 
So researchers believe, and hold on to your butts for this one, that there is, quote, a central common core of human darkness. These researchers have finally discovered the central driving force behind all of these darkest of human traits, D. That's right, D, or the D factor, is what they're calling the dark factors of personality. Not sure how many focus groups, how much brainstorming, how many late nights went into this naming, but here we are. Now, before we mock, it's probably too late for that, before we mock the naming further and more than we already have, This is actually a nod to something created in the early 1900s called the G-factor. Now, this is a general intelligence test kind of factor that focuses on cognitive abilities. It's similar to IQ, but not quite the same. It's more of a a measure of the ability to do well on other intelligence tests based on how well you did on some initial intelligence tests. At any rate, that's where they came up with this groundbreaking name of D for this dark factor of personality. Quote, in the same way, the dark aspects of human personality also have a common denominator, which means that similar to intelligence, one can say that they are all an expression of the same dispositional tendency, explained psychologist Ingo Zettler from the University of Copenhagen in Denmark back in September 2018. So the D factor is supposed to be a measure of the interrelatedness of our dark traits. As he said, it's a common denominator value that kind of ties them all together. Now, researchers performed four studies over 2,500 participants evaluating answers to a variety of questions or statements that measured their levels of these dark personality traits. I'll go over some of these questions in a minute, but participants were given a series of statements, asked to rank their agreement on a five-point sliding scale from completely agree to completely disagree. And then using these responses, the researchers did their data analysis magic, quote, with the results suggesting that while these dark traits are all distinct, they all overlap to some extent, owing to the central core darkness factor D, which reveals itself in different ways in different people. Now, the researchers said that for different people, this D factor may manifest itself as a single trait or a combination of traits, but they're all interconnected through this D factor rather than existing individually. The researchers, with the data and the analysis in hand, then created a spider plot to display the overall darkness of a person and the dominant trait or traits that may be displayed. For those that aren't knowledgeable about various types of graphical plotting, Why in the world would you be? A spider plot, or a spider diagram, is a picture that kind of looks like a spider's web. You know, thus the name. On the outside of the web, each factor of interest, in this case we have 10 of them, are a point on the web. And each one of these, in this case, is a value of 5, which you'll understand that shortly. With straight lines connecting point to point and straight lines going from each point to the center of the web, you start to kind of build that web. Now, the center of the web is generally considered to be the zero point. In this case, the center is a value of one. And in each triangle segment going from center to each point on the outside, there are parallel lines to that outside line that connects point to point that represents the scale of results. So the overall scale is from one at the center to five on the outside. Basically, it's an easy way to plot a large amount of interrelated data. 
So based on the answers to each of these questions in the study, a resulting score for each of the 10 traits is calculated and it's plotted on those lines in the spider diagram. All those plotted lines are then connected with a line and it results in some sort of massively deformed circle that's centered about the center of the web. The larger your circle, the darker of a person you are. And a point or points that stick out the farthest from the center are those traits that are the most dominant. Like I said, I seriously doubt that anybody would have no circle at all, meaning they have no dark trait that, you know, in their very being at all, if they answered the questions honestly, at least. But the smaller the circle, the better. So what's the point of this study? Just to show how depraved we are as a society? I think we can turn on the news or open a browser and scan the news ribbon or, you know, just observe people. And we could probably see that. Quote, we see it, for example, in cases of extreme violence or rule-breaking, lying, and deception in the corporate or public sectors, Zettler said. Here, knowledge about a person's defactor may be a useful tool, for example, to assess the likelihood that the person will reoffend or engage in more harmful behavior. I'll be honest, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with the idea that this could potentially be used to predict the potential for reoffense. That gets into a very scary, very gray area of human predictability that I don't think could ever be accurate enough. And the inaccuracy, uh, that could be devastating to people. Touch on that in a second. But before we get away from this study, there is a link in the article and a link in this episode's notes to bring you to an online test to determine your own defactor. There isn't any email needed. There's no personal data collected. There's no cost. They're literally just collecting data. If you're not able to check the notes, this test can be found at darkfactor.org. Now, there are two tests. There's a quick test of about 16 questions that gives you a basic overall score and your ranking as compared to the over 2.1 million other test takers thus far. The longer test is about 70 questions, and it gives you that same information, although more accurate since there are more questions to evaluate you, as well as your spider plot of your darkness factors for each of the 10 traits. Now, I took both tests so I could at least credibly be able to cover this topic for you. My thought prior to taking the test was that it would be stupid. I guess that's cynical, right? But to be honest, I found it to be interesting, and in some cases, really thought-provoking. Of course, with any test like this, your results are only as reliable as you're honestly answering the questions. Now, I have to say that the questions are likely not questions you've ever heard before, at least not phrased as directly as these questions are. And in some cases, I really had to think about them because I wanted to think if I'm answering based on an aggressor, a violent aggressor, or a friend or a family member, just a random stranger. So in some cases where my initial thought was something like, oh, I completely disagree with that, I had to back it down to maybe only disagree. Because if we're talking about someone wishing to do me harm, well, I guess to put it in their terms, my D factor increases toward that person. So here are a very small sample of the statements from the longer test, mostly grabbed randomly, although there were a few that I specifically wanted to point out. Uh, first, someone who hurts me cannot count on my sympathy. I would not cheat, even if there was only a small chance of getting caught. It's okay to treat badly somebody who behaves like scum. I like that one. I feel sorry if things I do upset people. If I had the opportunity, then I would gladly pay a small sum of money to see a classmate who I do not like fail his or her final exam. Payback 
needs to be quick and nasty. I cannot imagine how being mean to others could ever be exciting. I would be willing to take a punch if it meant that someone I did not like would receive two punches. It is sometimes worth a little suffering on my part to help others in need. I tend to forgive the wrongs I have suffered. And I think the most disturbing question of them all, for a, a handful of reasons really, I would like to make some people suffer even if it meant that I would go to hell with them. This one is the most disturbing because although they don't broach the subject of religion at all, this shows that they're willing to use at least the concept of Christianity to test people's responses. It also scares me to think about how many people chose anything other than completely disagree to this question. Now, after you answer the questions, they ask your gender, where I was completely offended, I'll be honest, as they did not have the full slate of 110 choices or however many we're up to now. They only had male, female, and other. <laughs> so disappointing. Do better, darkfactor.org. They ask your year of birth, your English skills, if you're a native English speaker all the way down to basic speaker, your country, and a scale of political ideology from right to left. Then they ask you a question if you did or did not carefully respond to all of the statements and if you'll allow your responses to be added to the research. And then they further ask you, this is in a long test, if you'd be willing to answer another set of questions, which I did, and that turns out to be maybe another 30 or 40 questions, I didn't count them, and all those ask you about your view of your country in relation to other countries. Uh, they're, really, they're really doing some interesting research here. Now, once you finish the test, both the short and the long test give you a score from one to five, right? One is a very low level of darkness, five being very high. And then they give you a simple distribution bell curve with your ranking as compared to the other respondents. All right. And the moment you've all been waiting for, how dark is your humble podcast host? What exactly is Dan's D-Factor? And I'm going to tell you. I did my best to answer both tests honestly as much as I could, as much as I could figure out what they were trying to ask. My short test put me at a D factor of 1.81, which is on the low side of the scale, very low. And since the longer test would give more accurate results because more questions, I'll use those results at this point. So my D factor from the long test came in at a 1.69, so slightly lower. Not perfect, but quite low. As compared to the other 2.1 million plus participants, I rank at 9%, which means that 91% of the respondents are darker than I am. Or, to put it a different way, there are only 9% of the respondents that are as undark or undarker as I am. And I'll take that. As for my spider plot, what are my best and worst traits? So my ratings ranged from a 1.12, that was my lowest, which is nearly perfectly not dark, to my worst trade at a 2.56, which is slightly under the midpoint of the 1 to 5 scale of darkness. So here's what I've got. Psychopathy. Recall this is a callousness or lack of remorse. That was a 1.2. This is followed closely by egoism, which is concerned with myself at the expense of others. That's a 1.2 also. Moral disengagement, or behaving unethically with no moral distress, that came in at a 1.6. Sadism, or hurting others for my own pleasure, is at a 1.64. Narcissism, or self-promotion, is at a 1.68. Spitefulness was at a 1.84. Self-centeredness and psychological entitlement tied at a 2.0. Greed was at a 2.24. And Machiavellianism, the cynical worldview, 
that was my worst at a 2.56. And if you've listened to this podcast, you're likely nodding and saying, yeah, he seems somewhat cynical. Yeah, I, I'd see that. Definitely see that. Now, looking at these from how I ranked as compared to the others in the study, keeping the same order I just covered them in, keeping in mind that the percent is how many people are equal or less dark than I am. So the lower the number, the better. Psychopathy is a 3%. Egoism is a 4%. Moral disengagement is a 4%. Sadism is a 21%. Narcissism is 7%. Spitefulness is 15%. Self-centeredness is 22%. Psychological entitlement is 13%. Greed is 21%. And Machiavellianism is a 33%. Now, what this tells me is that um, I'm not perfect. Shocked. I know. So, some of these results sound worse than they actually are. I don't think that I'm a greedy person, per se. At least not how you or I would think about greed. And I don't know. Maybe I am. Maybe. If you took the test, I think you'd see how some of the questions are they're just really difficult to answer. Like, there was one that was something like, um, there's a point for everything where someone has enough. Well, no, not, not really. I mean, there's nothing immorally wrong with stuff or even a lot of stuff. So I had to completely disagree with that. No doubt that nudged the old greed score up just a bit. Now, there were questions about hurting other people and the way that they were phrased. They could possibly be speaking about those enacting some sort of violence upon you. So, yeah, I'd do everything I could to hurt or kill them and feel zero remorse, depending on the situation. And some questions were very straightforward. Others really took some thought. Now, just a brief note on the results of this test, or similar ideas used to predict some aspect of criminality. This idea was probably most recently popularized in the 2002 Tom Cruise movie, Minority Report, which is actually based off of a book of the same name from 1956. Now, the basic plot of the movie, at least as far as we're concerned with, is that in 2054, which let me just make a note here, that's only 30 years from now, which is the same amount of time from now back to 1994. Just let that roll around in your head for a little while. <laughs> That's long enough. In 2054, there's a police program using clairvoyant humans called precogs, and that would use psychic impressions to predict impending crimes, specifically homicides, and then the police would figure out who the criminal was going to be and arrest them and charge them for pre-crimes. Now, the idea of being charged with pre-crimes has been around for quite some time, and the desire by law enforcement and our government overlords is to use technology to do just this. But a pre-crime isn't a crime. The idea of saying that we think you will do something at some point in the future, so we're going to charge you with it now, that seems to be criminal in itself. Now, would it stop some crimes? Oh, absolutely. Would it wrongly accuse or convict innocent people? Ah, oh, absolutely. And that's the problem. It's innocent until proven guilty. Not guilty until proven innocent. And it's definitely not guilty while being innocent. Now, we see some of this today, at least some things that are, boy, they're right on the fringe of prosecuting pre-crimes, like take red laws for guns, for instance, where anyone can call the police and tell them that they think this person over here who owns guns may do something wrong. That's a very gray area, and it's an area that can and has been used as a revenge tactic or in order to blackmail or sabotage someone in a different legal area. Now, according to what I found, as far back as 2016, AI was being used to predict crime or the potential for reoffense. Now, at that time, they were saying that the system was racist. 
<laughs> of course, against minorities, that what the algorithms were doing was more biased against these minorities than whites. Now, whether they were or they weren't, that should have illustrated the problem with using AI or any system to predict crime. It's subject to error. The problem with trying to predict something like crime is that humans are unpredictable. This is also the reason that I don't believe we'll ever have to be too overly concerned with artificial intelligence in a general sense, because a computer can't think like a human. It doesn't have wisdom. It can't think and compute in unpredictable ways. This is also why auto-driving cars will never work. Mark my words. Will never work. Not in a world with human-driven cars, bikes, motorcycles, pedestrians, etc. The idea that we can take a test and be evaluated with any certainty as to having criminal tendencies is foolish, in my humble Machiavellianist opinion. Did I use the word right? I hope so. This, to me, is only a step up from the old practice of anthropological criminology, when the slope of your forehead, the closeness of your eyes, your height, your head shape, etc., were all predictors of your potential for criminality. So as interesting as this study is, I think they're missing the boat, and I think they're missing a treasure trove of data. They do factor in, like I said, gender, location, political ideology. But what about faith? What about specific religion? Shouldn't Christians have the lowest darkness score of everyone? Shouldn't we show the world that Christians are the least dark of them all? You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's who we're called to be. And if you have a problem with that, take it up with Jesus. Those are his words, and uh, best of luck if you do. Now, James tells us, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. See, the problems in this world stem from our desires. This is basically the collection of the traits in the study, our desires. Going a little deeper, again, James, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And that's the D factor. These researchers didn't really have to create a name for what seems to be the common denominator linking all these dark traits together. That term has been around since Genesis 4-7. The word is sin. It's the sin factor. S factor. Further, we know that all are dead in their sins. All have sinned. Our hearts are desperately wicked. There's nothing to combat this D factor or S factor except for Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. We're not able to do it. We're not able to resurrect our dead lives. We're not able to turn our enmity with God to friendship. Only salvation through Jesus can do that. 
Now, once saved, we then enter into the process of sanctification where the fruits of the Spirit, which we all have in varying degrees that should be increasing over time, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, those things combat the dark personality traits. Born-again Christians are the only people who truly have a way to fight the darkness of sin. The fact that the law is written on the hearts of man helps to keep us in general from displaying our evil tendencies just continually, but only those indwelt by the Holy Spirit are able to combat the defactor. So, for as interesting as this study is, and for as interesting as the analysis of this data is, for as useful as the data could potentially be, the reality is that without understanding the religious aspect of the people partaking in the research, the results are at best incomplete. If you take the test, or if you don't, and you want to fight those personality traits that are considered dark, if you take the test and you see certain traits are just sticking out like a sore thumb and you want to combat those traits, understand that those aren't dark traits, they're sin. And then turn to Christ. Repent, if you haven't, place your faith in the one true God, which is the only way to beat back the S-factor with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Basically, turn to God and live. And with that, sadly, we've reached the end of yet another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. I feel we've bonded as we've laughed and cried and twisted our faces in incredulity. If you've enjoyed or found value in what you've heard, go on and do all the podcast things. And don't forget to check the show notes for links and contact info. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.